This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Rebecca Roanhorse discusses her debut novel, Trail of Lightning. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot recaps Book Expo, BookCon, and the New York Rights Fair. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by NPD BookScan. What have you got over there on the nonfiction side? Well, uh, our, our debut, the uh, Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes, uh, is a uh, is is actually a companion to the game, uh, and uh, so that's at number one. At number three, we have David Sedaris's Calypso. It's a starred review, and we say humorous. Sedaris collects twenty-one essays, largely about family bonds and getting older, in this hilarious yet tender volume. We say the authors, fans, and newcomers alike will be richly rewarded by this side-splitting collection. So uh, that's. Uh, David Sedaris. And then uh, number 13, another starred review, this one of Tailspin, the people and forces behind America's 50-year fall and those fighting to reverse it by Stephen Brill. Brill, who's written America's Bitter Pill, he's a court TV founder and journalist, uh, traces an upward spiral of inequality, stagnating wages, expensive and substandard healthcare and schools, crumbling infrastructure, hollow economy that jettison manufacturing in favor of low-paid services. So so this is um, uh, what he's talking about is a uh, we live in a dysfunctional system serving an unaccountable ruling class is which is wrecking America. He brings both detailed reporting and wide-ranging perspective to this insightful account of how America reached its current state. So uh, that's getting a lot of attention at number 13. And at number 20, we have Living with Monks, What Turning Off My Phone Taught Me About Happiness, Gratitude and Focus by Jesse Eitzler. Uh, we don't have a review of this, but this is a memoir and a road trip to living a less stressful and more vibrant life. And apparently turning off your cell phone is one of the ways which he, uh, which he did it. And that's what we have on the nonfiction. Well, in fiction, we have uh, at number one, The Outsider, Stephen King. Not new this week. It came out last week. But last week, we were all at Book Expo, BookCon, and the New York Mm -hmm. Rights Fair. So I just wanted to make a note of that, especially because its second week sales are still outstanding. Over 50,000 copies sold in hardcover, according to NPD BookScan. So Stephen King's going to hang out there at the number one spot for a while, I think. Uh, And our review calls uh, The Outsider a wild, weird tale wrapped inside a police procedural in this nicely executed extension of his Bill Hodges detective trilogy. And we say that Mm. King's skillful use of criminal forensics helps to ground his tale in a believable clinical reality where the horrors stand out in sharp relief. And uh, there is a little bit of a supernatural element there, so uh, fans of King's work will uh, find that it, it really hits the sweet spot. At number two, we have Shelter in Place by Nora Roberts. We have a new two, three, four, and five this week, so I'm just going to run right down them. And this sold about 40,000 copies, according to NPD BookScan, so yeah, very nice uh, showing there. And if Stephen King hadn't happened to come out with a book at the same time, then this one would undoubtedly have hit number one. We say that the latest from the prolific Roberts uh, follows the survivors of a mass shooting in Maine as they piece their lives mm. together, only to be targeted three years later by the tragedy's mastermind. So this is definitely more on the thriller side. And uh, we say that Roberts's characters are serviceable, but the real draw is the story, which has some welcome red herrings and a page-turning brio. You know, whenever I read a Nora Roberts book, I know immediately (laughs) that it is a Nora Roberts book. She just has that gift for making the words leap off the page. And, uh, Mm. you know, it's clearly that that's an evidence here. 
At number three, we have another thriller, The Grey Ghost, a Sam and Remy Fargo adventure by Clive Cussler and Robin Burcell. This is the 10th book in the series, and we say that this refreshing novel benefits from a clever flashback device. It goes back to 1906 um, and uh, features in that section of the story Isaac Bell, who's the hero of a historical Cussler series about the men and women of the Van Dorn Detective Agency. So we get a little bit of a tie-in there for Cussler fans. And we said that this imaginative mix pumps new energy into a series that has shown signs of tiring in recent entries. At number four, uh, To the Moon and Back by Karen Kingsbury. We gave this a starred review. It's an inspirational story. Um, say that it's a, a pleasing tale of heartache uh, about two uh, teenagers who share the devastating experience of losing their parents in the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. And uh, they they meet and connect deeply for a few brief hours at the memorial site in 2007. So they were children, young children, when the bombing happened. They meet as teens, mm. and then they disappear from each other's lives for over a decade, but never stop thinking about each other. And uh, they finally meet again and figure out that the tragedy affected them in different ways, and they need to rely on their Christian faith to overcome their past and forge a new future. And uh, we say in our review, Kingsbury skillfully weaves a tale of divine love coming to those in the most need in this romantic tearjerker. So again, a star for that, uh, and uh, definitely worth picking up for fans of inspirational romance. And finally, at number five, The Death of Mrs. Westaway by Ruth Ware. We say this is a tense, twisty, modern gothic set in England uh, in which uh, a woman named Hal Westaway receives a letter saying that her grandmother, Hester Westaway, is dead and that Hal is a beneficiary of her will. But Hal knows there's been a mistake. Her grandmother was named Marion Westaway and died two decades earlier. But she owes a lot of money to some dangerous people, and so she decides to take the bequest that is not properly hers. Uh, but when she arrives, it turns out uh, perhaps the invitation was no accident and nothing is what she expects. And we say that evocative prose, artfully shaded characters, and a creepy claustrophobic atmosphere keep the pages okay. of this explosive family drama turning. And that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction bestseller list. It sounds exciting, and I like that it's one through five right there. Right there, right at the top. <laughs> exactly. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Rebecca Roanhorse tells us about Navajo magic after the apocalypse. We'll be right back. I'm Mark Oshiro, author of Anger is a Gift, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Rebecca Roanhorse on the line. Her new book is Trail of Lightning. Hi, Rebecca. So glad you could join us. Hi. Thanks for having me. So this fantasy debut launches the uh, Sixth World Series and begins with an event that flooded much of the Earth. Tell us about that and take us from there. Uh, sure. So it's a sort of a climate change apocalypse, but along with, you know, sort of the rising waters of climate change uh, come a few uh, cataclysmic events like um, earthquakes and uh, the energy wars, which I guess is a man-made uh, cataclysm, uh, referencing sort of, you know, what's going on with pipelines through tribal lands and uh, things like that. <laughs> so I envision that sort of turning into a larger war. Um, and after all of this sort of goes down, uh, one of the few places still standing and in pretty good shape is the Navajo Reservation. And so my book is set on sort of a near future Navajo Reservation, now returned to its ancestral name, which is the Neta, um, and it's populated primarily by Navajo folks. And despite uh, what's gone on in the rest of the world, uh, they're doing okay. Except, of course, uh, now gods and heroes of legend have uh, sort of risen up. And uh, along with that comes monsters as well. Tell us about how the Diné keep Dinata uh, sort of protected and safe. Uh, I, I was very struck by the descriptions of the walls around uh, this region and, and how they came to be. 
Yeah, so, yeah, you know, sort of in reference to what's going on in, uh, in America right now, <clears throat> um, the, the Diné or the Navajo uh, built a wall around <laughs> their uh, ancestral homeland. And uh, they had the foresight to do that, I guess, before uh, the world sort of uh, fell apart. Uh, but considering what Native Americans have gone through in the past, uh, I didn't really see uh, this wall being this, or, or even their world um, being uh, sort of this dark uh, dystopian vision where you see the high concrete walls and the, you know, the barbed wire and, you know, that sort of thing you see when you think of a dystopian future. I saw this as a renaissance because so many, you know, natives have already been through our dystopian future. We've already had the totalitarian governments and the invasions and been sent off to schools and, you know, lost, had our families broken up and, and all of that sort of thing. So for me, uh, if you're going to build a wall, uh, it's going to be a wall uh, that's going to be beautiful. And it, it comes from the sort of, uh, there's four sacred mountains in uh, Navajo uh, <coughs> culture, and each one is represented by a different uh, type of stone. And so when the wall is built, the wall is a, a magical wall, for lack of a better word. And then in each area of the wall, north, south, east, west, is represented by the stone that represents, uh, that is represented by the mountain that is in that cardinal direction. So we we have the the Navajo that are protected that are in their 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 forest their walled areas. Who's on the outside? <laughs> Pretty much everyone else. You know what what's left of the world. And and in Trail of Lightning, I don't really explore what's on the outside. I wanted to create uh, a world that felt very sovereign. That was not a reaction to colonialism or was not in dialogue really with what was going on in the rest of the world. I wanted to create a world that felt Navajo. And uh, I wasn't really interested in what was going on in the rest of the world, except in passing. <clears throat> but in, you know, in later books, this is a series, uh, we will venture outside the wall and we will see what else was going on. Uh, but for this one, I wanted to keep it inside. So uh, there's a character, Maggie Hosky, who emerges as someone who has, uh, it appears, gained some legendary powers. Tell us about her. Sure. So Maggie Hosky is my, my protagonist, and uh, she is a monster hunter. And uh, she comes by that sort of uh, with a tragic past um, that has uh, led her to be mentored by one of the great heroes of Navajo legends. And that is Nayenis Gani. He is one of the hero twins that if you if you are interested at all in like Navajo stories, Navajo traditional stories, you will come across the story of the hero twin. And uh back in sort of the back in the day, I like to say, like in uh the earlier sort of iterations of the world in, in Navajo mythology or Navajo stories, uh the hero twins were monster hunters. They were monster slayers and and their job was to rid the world um, of monsters so that the Navajo, so that humans uh, could live in it. And uh, Maggie sort of takes after that tradition. She's trained by him and, and she becomes a monster hunter. And because of the trauma she experienced uh, when she was young, uh, she has been able to tap into these sort of powers, ancestral powers, uh, powers that have to do with uh, who she is. Uh, in the Navajo clan system, which is a complicated system of um, sort of family and family obligation um, and and become something more powerful, something more powerful than she would be without them. And tell us about some of the monsters and the creatures that have risen along with the resurgence of these ancestral clan powers. Sure. Um, hmm. So what the monster is in my story is a bit of a mystery. And so I don't want to give that away, um, but they are flesh eaters. I think that's fair to say. And I think, you know, in this book, as in a lot of monster books, the monsters are both physical, they're real, and they're metaphorical. You know, Ma Maggie is fighting physical monsters on the outside, but she's also, you know, fighting her own monsters on the inside. and certainly. There are humans around her uh, that 
would qualify as monsters on their own. Tell us a little bit about some of those side characters, the people who help her and the people who uh, are maybe not so helpful. So her, she has a sidekick, uh, which, you know, all good heroes have. Um, and that is that uh, her main sidekick is Kai Arviso, and he is a medicine man. And I really wanted to write a character uh, that was a medicine man, but that really sort of bust the stereotypes of what non-natives might think of when they think of a medicine man. So while he is a healer and uh, he is familiar, you know, in that sense, uh, he's also a bit of a, a pretty boy. He's a bit of a partier. Um, he's uh, a bit of a liar as well. And um, he really, but, but he's a good person, I think, inside. And I think that's the sort of difference or the the foil between uh, him and Maggie is uh, I'm not sure Maggie's quite a good person yet, but maybe she's on her way and maybe Kai can help her get there. And uh, Kai has a grandfather uh, who is the one that sort of introduces uh, Maggie to him and sort of gets that, that partnership going. And that's Grandpa Ka. And he is based on, you know, someone I know <laughs> on the, on the Navajo reservation. And, and I wanted to include him in the story. I think that oftentimes, particularly in fantasy, um, the elder, you know, comes on and they give some wisdom and then they die in order for the main character to sort of rise up and, and find their space and move forward. But I think in when you're writing a native story, I think you need to include elders. I think they're such an important part of the culture and um they're an important part of like of not only carrying on the stories, but uh, I guess sort of embodying, you know, what family is. And so even though Grandpa Ta and Maggie aren't related, he calls her his daughter, um, she's daughter, which is mm. like Navajo sort of slang for my daughter. Um, and she feels that obligation to him. Uh, so that's sort of, you know, who's working on the good side with her. And then there's some people who are sort of, I guess, what you would call um, neutral. Uh, like I have um, a gun running, bootlegging family <laughs> that uh, runs a bar and, and provides Maggie with some backup and some help. But, you know, at a price, everything's sort of at a price in this world. Uh, and then, you know, there's there's uh, gods and the heroes. Um, there's tricksters and there's, you know, Naina Stani, who I mentioned before, who was her uh, former mentor and and some other folks that I won't mention by name. I'm going to let those be a surprise, but they'll be familiar. Uh, maybe you haven't seen them quite this way because I don't know that uh, there have been a lot of natives writing fantasy stories and and um, <clears throat> talking about their uh, gods and heroes in the way that I do. Uh, but uh, they're familiar enough that I think a lot of people get a kick out of seeing them in the story. So you were talking about monsters and, and creatures, and uh, Maggie has some uh, mentioned some of her own personal demons. T tell us a little bit about what makes her work. You know, I wrote Maggie as a survivor, and and I think uh, she feels true to me. You know, as a, in a in a for a lot of Native women. Uh, statistics show that, you know, one in three Native women have been, you know, the victim of sexual assault. And a lot of uh, Native women uh, grow up in, you know, difficult circumstances, particularly on the reservation, but not only on the reservation, in cities and in other places. And there's even uh, a movement called the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Movement uh, that's trying to draw light or draw some attention to the fact that so many indigenous women in, in this country and in Canada are missing. And they just seem to, to go, you know, to disappear. They're often murdered or kidnapped or something, you know, uh, into um, human trafficking. And we don't talk about it. And it's very hard to raise awareness about it. And so knowing that sort of uh, real world stuff, that, that comes into that and, and knowing when I am going to write, you know, a native woman, she's going to be impacted by that reality. Uh, but this is also fantasy. <laughs> so I wanted, you know, to create someone who had those sort of survival skills, had been through trauma, had seen sort of a harder side of life 
uh, but we're still still going on, you know, still trying to do her best uh, to to do better, to fight her own demons, to fight the monsters, you know, that threaten the world, uh, but maybe not doing so so good at it. You know, she has a lot of anger. She makes some really bad decisions. Um, I'm not sure I want to hang out with her, uh, but but I'm excited, you know, to sort of see where she goes. I mean, she has she has potential, and and just like a lot of us, you know, she's wounded, but you know, I think I think she can grow. And she's not the only one. One of the things that really struck me about Kai is that he also has a history of trauma that I feel like often when you have sort of the wounded heroine and then the man who comes in who's all like you can be happy don't forget about happiness he actually has no roots in trauma and doesn't understand that aspect of her life but Kai does so the the book ends up being like this this catalog of different ways people can respond to trauma and grief was that part of what you set out to do absolutely and you know there is a part in the book where Kai and Maggie actually sort of have this conversation about um, what good can come from suffering. Can anything good come from suffering? Because the magical system, you know, in the book and their powers are rooted in surviving trauma and in, in suffering. And only the people who have survived, you know, this sort of deep trauma get these, get these superpowers. Um, and so they're sort of, you know, having this, this, this discussion and, and Kai is convinced that, you know, these, the powers are are a gift from the gods, from the from the holy people, as the Dene call them. And you know, Maggie's like, well, that sounds like a load of, you know, you know what to me. Like, I can't imagine anything that comes from suffering. And so I think that is sort of a theme in the book. And I don't really answer that one way or the other. I think that people can can find their own way through that. Um, but I I. Yeah, I, I imagine that is sort of an important part of the story. Yeah, and, and I don't think you can, hmm. you know, I'll be quite frank. I think, you know, for the Native American experience, so much of it is rooted in trauma and suffering. And and it doesn't have to be, you know, what literally happens to my characters. But when you're coming from, you know, a, a culture that has been, you know, so uh been through so much, you know, and has been, you know, land theft and, and like I said before, you know, you're breaking up of families and, and all sorts of things. Even specific to the Navajo experience, you know, things like the long walk, which is their version of the Trail of Tears, which I know people are more familiar with, but, you know, they had to go through the same thing before they were returned to their um, ancestral homeland. And so I think the characters that I'm going to write are going to have this sort of deep trauma. And that's something that they're all going to sort of carry. And then the way they deal with it is is going to vary the same way it varies, you know, in everyone else and in real people. So it's really up to them. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Rebecca Roanhorse, author of Trail of Lightning. You just won a Nebula Award for your story, Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience TM. So congratulations for that. <laughs> and um, and I wanted to uh, sort of consider that that question of authenticity. You, you have been talking about that a little bit. How has that influenced you as you as you write the idea of what is authentic and what is seen as authentic? Oh gosh. Well, that's, <laughs> that is a big question. I think, uh, particularly when you come from a culture that has not been portrayed in an authentic way in sort of popular imagination before, or at least very infrequently. So you have the Hollywood machine and you have Westerns and you have all of these, sort of things that inform the the mainstream imagination about what Native Americans are. And most of them are 
in the 1800s, <laughs> and most of them are dead. And so uh, clearly that's not the Native American that I know. Um, uh, and I, you know, the, most of the, the Natives I know, and I'm Native, my mother is Wenge, which is a tribe here in New Mexico, um, and I'm married to a Navajo man. And um, so our families, you know, are just people. They're just regular people. And we have, you know, these cultures and these histories, uh, these sort of rich traditions that we come from. But, you know, they have very little to do with what you see on the screen or what you read in books. And so I wanted to capture some of that, uh, some of that tension, I think, uh, in my short story, uh, because you know, I think especially I live in a I live in Santa Fe too, and it's a city that that really sort of markets its uh, Native American myths among other things. And so people come here for big events like Indian Market, which is a huge sort of cultural festival in August where you can see films and buy jewelry and you know sort of have your Native American experience, as it were. Um, but how much of it is sort of put on for tourists, and then how much of it is real? And uh, I think that's sort of an uh, issue that that threads its way through a lot of Native pop culture. And I think things are really changing now. I think that Native uh, are really create Native creators are really rising up and giving you know the, either creating their own or being given the means to express themselves in ways that they hadn't before. And a lot of that is sort of the egalitarianism that comes with the internet and with other media opening up and allowing voices that hadn't been heard before to be heard. Uh, but I think that's really challenging what what is authentic and what isn't authentic. And I think I'm just trying to be real, you know, so I'm sure not, not I don't know that authentic would be something that I would apply to myself. I'm certainly only one voice, you know, out of dozens. Uh, but I try to portray what I see around me. And uh, hopefully I'm doing that. So there's a scene where readers get glimpses of all the different types of magic among the Diné. And uh, you were just talking about Santa Fe, where this is a uh, a place where people come to, uh, you know, for different reasons uh, uh, to learn about or celebrate or the spiritual nature of Native Americans there. Um, how much of the uh, magic is rooted in folklore? How much of it is your creation? Mm. So I tried to root all of my magic in my creation. I tried to be very specific in Trail of Lightning uh, to keep the spiritual side of uh, Diné culture spiritual and real, uh, because I don't consider that magic per se. I consider that just the way it is. That's culture. But this is fantasy, and I wanted to create, you know, superpowers. I wanted to create, you know, heroes with, with superpowers. So those, while they are rooted in uh, Navajo culture, specific to the Navajo clan system and to sort of ancestry, uh, those are completely made up. The clans are real. I didn't make up any clans. I tried to keep, uh, you know, uh, like Maggie is walking around clan and, and um, Arrow uh, clan and so those are actual real clans. But as far as them, you know, giving you superpowers to go really fast or to kill people, yeah, that's not true. <laughs> I hadn't thought of this as a superhero origin story, but that really is what it is. Did you did you feel yourself drawing on comics traditions as well? Um, you know, I drew mostly from urban fantasy traditions. I mean, I think that there's a lot of elements in this book that you know are clearly come from that urban fantasy that was so big in like the late 90s and early 2000s and which I love I'm a huge fan of um and do those draw from superhero traditions probably quite a bit you know so I think that's fair to say um yeah hmm I definitely get that urban fantasy feel, even though there's not an urban setting. You don't get sort of the the dark, narrow, noir streets. This is I. You could really tell you were out in the desert. You were in um, 
small towns and roadside places. Uh, I've spent a fair amount of time in rural Arizona and it felt very real and very familiar to me. What was it like writing that setting? Yeah, so, right, because I had a friend uh, say to me, why do they keep calling this urban fantasy? Like in some of the reviews, you're like, it's not in the city. And I was like, no, it's a genre. It, it plays with certain tropes. But you're absolutely right. This is rural <laughs> fantasy or, or res fantasy specifically, I guess. Um, but, you know, I lived on the Navajo reservation for a couple of years. And this, I, you know, it felt very comfortable. I, this is what I see around me. Like Santa Fe is not a huge place and you drive 10 minutes and then you're in the middle of nowhere again. And um, certainly, you know, living on the Navajo nation, uh, that you are, you know, yeah, you're in the middle of the desert, uh, a beautiful desert, high desert, mountains, you know, red cliffs, uh, you know, white rolling hills, um, just visually a stunning place, uh, but certainly not very populated. And that was the world that I wanted to showcase. That was the world that felt, you know, familiar to me and that I hadn't seen a lot of stories or really any stories. Uh, set in uh, a world like that. So that, that's, that was what I wanted to portray. How do the fantastical elements help you address real-world social issues? We touched on this a little bit earlier, but maybe talk about it more. Hmm. Well, certainly um, uh, the trauma issues, you know, uh, basing their uh, magic system in, in trauma. Uh, and then I think also sort of the larger world of, of the aftermath of, you know, sort of climate change and uh, wars, energy wars and pipeline wars. And you'll see a little more of that, I think, in book two, uh, when they do uh, go out into the larger world, um, that becomes more of an issue. Um, and just, uh yeah, I don't know, wanting to show, uh, you know, again, you know, a survivor, someone who had, you know, been through a lot and now can maybe tap into to powers. And, and in the book, there are fantastical powers. But, you know, I'm not convinced that I'm not unconvinced, I guess, that uh, going through a lot of trauma doesn't give you uh, reserves, you know, that that uh, help you fight, fight the bad guys in your life and, you know, internal and external. And the book ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. Did you always intend it to start a series? I did, yes. Um, I always knew that I wanted to spend more than just one book in this world, and I knew that uh, these characters had more to say than, you know, I could fit into 300-odd pages. And I wanted to travel with them. I, I wanted to, you know, see uh, not just the larger world um, of, you know, beyond the reservation walls, uh, but uh, also, you know, the character arts, like where will they go next? How will they grow? Um, so I, I knew I wanted to write a series, definitely. And do you see yourself as writing primarily for a Native audience, for people who haven't seen themselves in books like this, or for a broader audience? Um, I think a little bit of both. I think I'm writing for a Native audience in the sense that I get most excited when especially uh, Navajo folks read this and they like it and they tell me things like, I see myself in Kai or I see my little sister in Maggie and like that's just, well, <laughs> poor little sister, but you know, that's just awesome to me. That means that, you know, I did something good and, and I hit the mark and I was able to uh, give good representation in a way that a lot of people have never seen before. But at the same time, you know, I wanted to share this world. I wanted to share um, what I had experienced, uh, you know, living on the Navajo reservation and in Navajo culture and sort of the, the sure, there's a lot of trauma there, but there's a lot of joy. Uh, there's a lot of family. There's a lot of beauty. Uh, there's a lot of wonder, I think, that um, a lot of people don't know about. They hear the tragedy a lot, but they don't get to hear, you know, the family a lot, the, the deep bonds, the, the way that people help other people, um, 
you know, sort of this rich cultural tradition uh, that a lot of Navajo folks uh, keep alive and carry in the language and in the ceremonies. And so I wanted to share that too. We've been talking with Rebecca Roanhorse, and you can find her book, Trail of Lightning, in stores right now. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. This has been wonderful. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about Book Expo and Book Con, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Tessa Fontaine, the author of The Electric Woman, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about Book Expo, Book Con, and the New York Rights Fair. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. How are you? Doing well, thank you. We're all recovering from a very busy week. It was certainly the busiest week, <laughs> um, with the addition of the New York Rights Fair, um, which we can talk about a little later. But it was the first first time that was held concurrently with uh, Book Expo, so it made for a very busy week and a lively week. And maybe we can interview Mark about what happened over at the Rights Fair. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, let's uh, let's start with uh, let's go in order. Let's start with the uh, book expo. A book expo um, got off to a bit of a rocky start. The, um, you know, Reed Exhibitions, who puts it on, has tried uh, to tinker with the, the the format and the length of the show to try to appease all the different stakeholders who participate in the event. Um, you know, a couple of years ago in Chicago. It started at one o'clock on Wednesday, and uh, last year it was only a two-day affair, Thursday and Friday. Um, and while they were doing that to try to save some costs for exhibitors, some other exhibitors thought two days for just Book Expo wasn't enough. So they tried to literally split the baby, you might say. And this year, um, Companies I wanted to be just in Book Expo were there for Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and the publishers who wanted to be there on Thursday and Friday, as well as BookCon, uh, that was an option too. So what they did was on Wednesday, they split the floor um, hmm. with about uh, a quarter of the floor open to people who wanted to be there um, for those three days with the rest of it not being open till Thursday. So what happened was um, a lot of people were confused about what was going on, despite, you know, everybody's efforts to try to communicate what was happening. Uh, I talked to a number of the uh, publishers and others exhibitors who were in um, the hall on Wednesday. And while they weren't necessarily uh, dismayed that, you know, about the lack of traffic from booksellers and that sort of thing, and they had their meetings, um, the booksellers that would come by were like, why can't we go next door and visit Random House too? And it was like, because Random House, <laughs> that section won't be open till Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of, huh? What what's this all about? And I, I talked right. to a couple of publishers who were in uh, the book expo, book con, you know, four day event, who didn't even know that other publishers were opened on um, on Wednesday. So uh, it wasn't really uh, the smoothest smoothest day. And we the executives uh, pretty quickly acknowledged that they're not going to do that again. <laughs> um, but by and large, after we hit Thursday and Friday, uh, things settled down a bit into sort of, you know, the typical the typical uh, book expo with a lot of authors, lots of uh, books being displayed. And uh, what what do you think they'll do differently next time? We'll make it and uh, we'll, we'll give it the extra day, that third day. Yeah, it looks like. Uh, one of their executives was going around three days, three days, mm-hmm. um, which pretty much means, you know, it will, the book expo part will be three days. And I, I guess the book kind part will stay at two. I mean, none of this stuff is final, but, right. you know, judging from 
from what's happening. Uh, I think that's the way it's going to go. Because it's, it's sort of a shame because in some ways they didn't overshadow, but it did kind of uh, put a bit of a cloud over um, a lot of efforts uh, Reed had put in to try to reimagine the show, uh, to use their phrase. And there were lots of big names uh, uh, at the event, you know, not just authors, but a lot of, you know, people high up uh, in book publishing and book selling. Because one of the, the notable things was Len Riggio, the chairman and founder of Barnes & Noble, was the keynote speaker. And, you know, he was introduced by Oren Tyker, who's the CEO of American Booksellers Association. Mm -hmm. And not so many years ago, uh, Barnes & Noble and ABA were, were arch enemies, uh, with ABA, among other things, suing Barnes & Noble. Um, so the fact that uh, they were shaking hands, uh, I think, you know, was uh, another demonstration that uh, in today's marketplace, it's a uh, Bricks and mortar retailers versus uh, those online retailers mm -hmm. whose names shall not be mentioned. <laughs> right. So, so despite all that, what was the actual energy like on the floor? I mean, I know there was confusion um, about the two different spaces, the, even different levels. But once on the floor, what what was the consensus about the uh, the feel? Um, you know. Uh, among the, the smaller independent publishers, uh, they tend to think it's uh, it's still a worthwhile show. I mean, everybody agrees that the industry needs a place, you know, to get together, if you will, to rally the industry, you know, to, to you know compare notes and all that sort of thing. Um, but there, there still is this nagging question about, well, is this the best format? Um, you know, what else can they do? I mean, there are, you know, some, some independents and some of the larger publishers think, think it's maybe too expensive. Um, but you know, that's not, not a universal concern. I'm sure everybody like it to be cheaper, but you know, there are realities to all of this. Um, so it's still, I think it's still uh, a work in progress, despite the fact that, you know, the fair in one part or another has been on for a hundred years. <laughs> right, right. And I've been going to it for about 30 years, and every year they complain about the show. <laughs> right, right. It's true. I've been doing it for, well, about half as long, but, but exact, it's true. Uh, they're, uh, 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 and they keep coming back, so at least most of them. <laughs> Right, I know. I mean, and it's too bad because, you know, in some ways it takes some of the energy away from what, you know, is going on there. I mean, you know, just looking at a picture of the children's breakfast that was held on Friday, and you had Jacqueline Woodson, Dave Eggers, and Viola Davis there. I mean, those are, you know, those are people that a lot of booksellers want to see, and, you know, I would, would think they all have interesting books coming out. So. Right. Uh, and it's not to say everybody, you know, that's what everybody talks about nonstop is, you know, well, what do you think of the show? It's what us reporters ask. <laughs> and that's one of the right. questions. But we also certainly ask, you know, what books are you excited about for the fall? Um, you know, that sort of thing. You know, one of the, I think the consensus was in the adult area, um, Michelle Obama's book, uh, Becoming, uh, no surprise, uh, is one of the top titles people are looking for. So, you know, it would be nice if the focus was on, you know, that sort of thing, rather than, you know, is it two days? Is it three days? Uh, where's my booth going to be? Um, right. Because there's, there's a lot to talk about. And, you know, for the first time in a number of years, uh, as well, especially since um, the Apple litigation, the CEOs of... Um, Three of the big five publishers were there. You know, um, ever since the Apple thing, they've been uh, afraid of being in the same room together for uh, the uh, chance that somebody would accuse them of colluding to raise prices again. Um, right. I should say again. I shouldn't. They never raise prices. Um, that, uh, but it was nice to hear them talk about, you know, their their views of the market, which you know, generally was, you know, pretty upbeat. Uh, consensus was uh, the industry's pretty much in a stable place with, um, 
you know, digital kind of balance, out of balance now with print and, you know, explosive growth of digital audio. So, um, you know, certainly not resting on their loyals because I think John Sargent pointed out as the head of Macmillan, you know, they have to stay very vigilant about, you know, how to respond to the changing buying habits of consumers because, you know, more and more are, are buying online. And even in the audio field, you know, with the growth has been downloadable audible, and that's a direct to consumer um, uh, market that, you know, obviously cuts out retailers. It's not something that anybody, that's not anybody's fault, just mm-hmm. the way that technology works. Right. And there was a little bit of confusion also by the thing you were at, Mark, because you were the host of the New York Rights Fair, is that um, that this was the first year it was there, and the idea was, and it was set up by uh, PW and Bologna Book Fair and Combined Book Exhibit, and it, uh, sort of at the last minute, Reed came along and gave its blessings to the whole event, and it was where, um, you know, internal rights were being uh traded and conducted and sold and there was a lot of programming about different things but it was not at the javits center it was uh, supposedly a short bus ride away um which could take an hour um so there was certainly some people on the floor saying why is the rights over at the metropolitan pavilion um you know it's going to come back here um so that was also another thing that had people got a little bit confused yeah, and from my end too, there was some cute confusion about that. But I have to say, the uh, I, I definitely felt that the energy uh, uh, at the rights fair uh, was really high. I mean, it was it was pretty exciting. The panels that uh, uh, Rachel Deal uh, put together were were I mean, just really great. Um, some good discussions. I think really well attended. Uh, I think. You know, I think there were some some uh, some folks there from the uh, you know international you know rights from in publishers who were maybe hoping for a little more traffic uh, at the booth there at the rights booth and tables there, uh, but but they felt hopeful and they were they were happy that this had happened and felt hopeful hopeful for uh, what what might come you know might what might grow into something bigger next season. Right, and, and you know to that end, I think Reed which, you know, again, organizes Book Expo and New York Rights Fair are working on a plan that could be announced next week <laughs> um, that will uh, show uh, you know, some greater cooperation between between the two um, uh, shows. And as you know, pe- people who attended uh, the New York Rights Fair could go to Book Expo, and right. uh, most people who attended uh, Book Expo could go to uh, the Rights Fair. So there was there was some shuttling back and forth, but um, as much as people hate to go to the Javits, I think they were a little uh, disappointed to have to travel <laughs> uh, to to go to go trade some rights. I did right. I did yeah. speak with uh, one agent who said that she loved the lineup at New York Rights Fair. Like the program was very enticing, but she kept not being able to find time to get there. So uh, definitely, you know, on the organizational front and uh, the program front, the schedule front, it sounded like it was a real success. It's just geography got in the way. Right. Yeah, I think yeah, that's exactly. probably a fair characterization of it. Yeah. Um, so again, it's it's a shame when some things take away from what you're going to be doing there, but something always takes away from it. Uh, we, uh, we should probably quickly mention BookCon. You know, that's the consumer-facing show, um, and it, it looks like they had about twenty thousand people there again on uh, Saturday and Sunday combined, which is about the same they had last year. Um, what they tried to do this year was. Um, add a little more diversity to the demographics uh, ever since it's been in existence about for about five years now. It's been really not aimed at, but it just so happened that uh, the, the biggest uh, participants were uh, 
tweens and uh, young women. Um, so they try to draw in, you know, some older people, some more men. And it seems like they succeeded to some degree. I mean, the, the early estimates are that while it used, the ratio had been like 80 percent uh, tweens and, and, and women, uh, that maybe that might have fallen down to 70%. And I was there for most of Saturday, and it did look like there was more men there and a slightly older crowd. Um, and one way they, they tried to do that was they had um, Bill Clinton there, along with James Patterson on Sunday, talking about their book that uh, is just coming out called The President is Missing. Right. And how was that attended? Uh, yeah, I think it was pretty much SRO as you might, uh, as you might imagine. Um, although, uh, I guess, uh, Clinton's been uh, grilled a little bit on as the book tour is kicked off about, uh, his, his experiences in the white house and the whole Monica Lewinsky thing, given what's been happening lately in the current administration. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, but all in all though, I think, you know, it was, I always enjoy the week. Um, you know, the the New York Rights Fair was a bit of a wild card, especially for us uh, at Peter. I'd be trying to cover all of it, um, but there's certainly there's lots to talk about. <laughs> um, right. You know, from Len Riggio's speech to copyright to books and self-publishing, and you know all the issues that uh, surround the industry. Well, Jim, it was an exciting time, and uh, I think we're all looking forward to seeing what's going to happen, how it's going to change next year. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Can't wait for 2019. Exactly. Well, Jim, thank you so much. It's always great to have you on our show. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, Senior Writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a Publishing News Week in Review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash radio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for brand new episodes, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 